Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Dr. Pat Murphy is an advanced practice nurse working with dying and grieving people in the inner city, and she teaches at New Jersey Medical School. She is a board certified in advanced psychiatric nursing by ANCC and in thanatology by ADAC. She has published extensively on bereavement, ethics, and palliative care. Welcome to the show, Pat. Hi. Good to be here. Hi, Pat. We've got the same degree. Oh. I, <laughs> I used to uh, teach at the University of Rochester. Oh, good school. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I was very interested. I know that you're a member of ADAC, the Association of Deaf Educators, and uh, Heidi and I are um, members of that. And we actually went to uh, their conference last year and did a, a bunch of YouTubes that you uh, we have on our site, right, Heidi? Yeah, we've got about I don't know fifty or sixty up there right now. Yeah, Pat, you'll have so, to tune into those. I'm yes, sure I will. Some of the folks you know are talking about their expertise, grief, and loss. And one of our, Heidi and I, one of our goals is to bring this expert information to the general public because we feel like sometimes all, you know, all the wonderful things that go on at ADAC and the ADAC conferences really don't get out mm-hmm. to the guy on the street. So, so I was interested. I, I think you just did something for ADAC, didn't you? Did you do? A, I did. I did. Uh, at least a page in their forum on death when when death is sudden and traumatic because that really is the focus of most of my work. Yeah. Um, a sudden. I worked in the trauma service and still do for quite a while. Yeah, and that's certainly dear to our heart because uh, in 1983, my son was killed in an automobile accident when I was actually uh, 17 years old, Heidi's brother, um, and I was teaching at the University of Rochester at the time. So uh, it's a very <clears throat> it's a very interesting area to me, and and I was looking at some of the research that you um, were involved. I don't know if you're still involved in the research project, where or you finished it, where you were looking at uh, the intensive care unit and things. Like um, that yeah, I, I had two nationally funded projects. One um, in the trauma, surgical trauma center to introduce palliative care into that environment, and the other into our medical intensive care unit. Um, and we we learned quite a bit, but I think before I even talk about that, I just need to say that the most of what I know about this work that I've been doing for almost 35 years, I've learned from the people in North New Jersey. The grandmothers in this city have taught me everything. I've spent many a night, all night with them, um, on their journey learning how to be with someone in the most intense pain of their life. Um, so that would be you the day you came and found out that your son was killed in a car crash. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, Pat, when you're working with the grandmothers, their losses are their, their children and grandchildren? Well, the grandmothers are the glue that hold the city together. Because oh, wow. The, okay. The middle generation um, either has been taken by the virus or the violence or lots of other things that happen in an inner city. And so the right. grandmothers are very often raising their children's children. Um and they are an amazing group of women who have taught me so much about how to be with people in pain. Um, certainly the moms and the dads are also important, but I have just you know, have a real connection with the grandmothers in this city. I've been in Newark for more than 37 years working in this population. 
Wow. So really you really have seen the suffering. You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, the, if you're if you're in the hospital intensive care, yeah. But um, you know, when you and you're with the families when they scream and fall on the yes. floor and yes. and do all you know all the things that we do. But you, but a lot of times people don't really realize the ramifications. You know, after they do leave because they're working in intensive care and they don't. There isn't a lot of aftercare money. Right, right. I do follow up with families um, after, let's say, a death in our trauma center. Yeah. I will follow those families for a couple of months, and if they need anything longer term, I will refer them. Mm-hmm. But um, I really do. I really do see as that time of notification or that time of spending the last few minutes with the person you love as incredibly important, um, because that stays with people for the rest of their life. What stays with them is how they were told the news and probably who told them. They may not know the name of the person, but they'll remember the kind of a person. What they remember is how they were told and and if it was a positive, if that could be a positive experience, at least a a compassionate experience, it stays with them forever. And if it was a negative one, it never leaves them either. So that's the message I get out to the medical students and the residents, the doctors in training, that that moment of being with that family is in, so important that you do it right. Right, right. That you don't make it worse. Yeah. The other message that's um, loud and clear to me that I give them is that they cannot make it better. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And they can't, but don't be profound. There's nothing profound nothing that you can profound. say. But there's nothing to say. And, and the interesting piece is so many of these young professionals who are going to be doctors or nurses go into the profession because they want to help. And at a time like this, everybody feels so powerless that they avoid the situation. What you have to help them understand is that they can't fix it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it, and all it. they can almost do is witness. That's all you do. You're a journey. You're on the journey, and you're, and, and being a witness is profound. Mm-hmm. Being able to stay with someone during that awful, awful time is is essential and very important to their. their yeah, I've got to tell you, Pat. I remember when my brother died. Someone came and gave me the news, and I didn't know this person. And I threw my arms around him, screaming and crying, and he got so stiff. Uh, and backed away from me, and I could tell he couldn't deal with my emotions. Yep. yep. I still remember that very, very clearly. Okay, this is not a person that I can do this with. You'll never forget that. I, I had an interesting experience a couple of years ago. We had an elderly woman who was hit by a car, and she was brought in to our trauma center, and it was clear that she wasn't going to survive. And her brother was out in the waiting room, so I went out to be with him, and I'm sitting there, and he starts to tell me that, you know, there used to be five of us five sibs, and and all my brothers and sisters are dead except for this one sister who's left. And then he said to me, out of nowhere, he says, you know, my brother Jimmy, he died in the war. Mm. He said, and I remember we were in the kitchen and this army guy came up the stairs. And and for me, I, it just made so real the fact that you never forget where you were and who told you. And yeah, that was Scott. 60-something years ago that well, he was talking about. Yeah, I mean, Scott was killed in 83, and I remember the police called us in yep. the middle of the night, and they then they came over to the house, and those two guys were so compassionate. I'll never know who they were. Wow. They sat down. I sat down with them, and this guy held my hand. Ah, that's amazing. See? You don't forget, mm-hmm. and it, and it's not like they can make it better. But they, what the what you experienced with your brother was he's pulling away. 
Right, and stiffening up and right. not Instead wanting. Right, of coming into being with you. And, and it's kind of like you absorb some of the pain. Mm-hmm. So it's very intense work. Um, I spend a lot of time taking families in to see the person when they're still alive, even mm-hmm. if the whole team is working on them. Mm-hmm. Because being with and touching and whispering in someone's ear when you believe they're still alive is very important, mm-hmm. as opposed to going in after they've been pronounced. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do a lot of that, and and I never I never leave them alone when I take them in there because the team needs to not have to take care of them at that time if they're working on the patient, right? Right. Um, exactly. Lots of rituals can occur around that time too that will facilitate the grieving process later. I, I, I do. We get a lot of kids, you know, traumatic accidents with kids. Um, and so often a lock of hair, washing the body mm-hmm. at that time for a mom is incredibly important. And if you can offer her the opportunity to bathe her child one more time, there's something very spiritual about that. Wow, I bet there is. Now, what about after they die? Do you that, that's to... usually when, you know, often with a child anyway, particularly either right before they die or after they die, yeah. we, we will encourage the family to be with them and, and bathe them. If, if I've never had a mom say, no, I don't want to I was going to say, that is so emotional just to have that visual mm-hmm. of a mom. But you know what else it does? It, it gives a mom, what I do, I stay with them and, and help them, you know, turn the body and do all that. And, and then I'll start by saying, oh, look at those feet. He's a big guy. How much did he weigh when he was born? And we are off on a life review. I was just thinking that. That's exactly what you're doing. That's fabulous. I he love weighs that. six pounds, eight ounces. He started to walk when he was this. And, and she goes and tells me all about her, her precious child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for her, that's healing on some level absolutely and the humanity there well i want to um uh i've got an email here uh from lucretia and it says um may 31st 2009 i lost my twin sister we uh were 32 years old i went on a bike ride to the river and while crossing in the crosswalk her sister was struck by a vehicle that didn't even slow down he didn't even uh, stop. He hit and ran. I need support. That's why I am at this website. Hopefully someone will help me. Mm. Do you have any thoughts for Lucretia? Oh, um, I guess it's very important for me to have the patient, the, the family member, identify what they mean by support. Mm-hmm. You know, what does she need? Right now she's in probably the worst time, May to now. She's coming up to the anniversary in a few more months. Right. It, it, there's no way to make this better. She just needs to know that she will come through this. Yep, yep. And, and she and will not be who she was before this happened. Uh, absolutely. And also, um, there's a twin sister organization. Do you remember uh, what it is, Heidi? Twinless Twins. Yeah, oh, Twinless good. Twins. So please, uh, Lucretia, go to Twinless Twins, and I think... Uh, you'll have some people who understand that that twin mm-hmm. situation. I think it because that great. was a unique situation. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it, it's really great to uh, have the internet, isn't it? Do, do you use the internet much with people, or recommend it? Um, I recommend it. I don't use it that much. Yeah. I mean, the students are all over it, of course. But mm-hmm. yeah, some of these twinless twins, uh, this kind of organizations are really unique and special. There's mm-hmm. some. Uh, yeah, and you know, I was I was interviewed for Time Magazine last a few weeks ago, and and they talked all about how people are using Facebook as a way to reach out to the grieving commu- to others that are grieving mm-hmm. and to get support when they're grieving. So That's yeah, great. I love the internet. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it can, it can be a great service. Well, you know, what about our families that are angry out there? They're listening to you right now and they're saying, well, that's all well and good, but I didn't have anybody like her around and, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm the, I did get bad notification. I mean, what do you suggest to these people? Yeah, I mean, you can't go back and fix that. Mm-hmm. It's not fixable. Um, all you can do is try and understand it, but, but you just try, or you just stay mad. You know, you get, you have that choice. And that's a legitimate emotion, right, Pat? Well, really yeah, and, and basically if you think about it, the two big emotions that keep us from feeling the devastating emotion are anger and guilt. Right. And so if we are pissed off at something or someone, or if we are incredibly guilty because we think something we did, you know, the, the if-onlys, I call them, that anytime you hear the word if-only, the words if-only, you're hearing guilt. Mm-hmm. Those two emotions protect us and defend us on some level from the powerlessness we feel. Mm-hmm. I, w- I want to talk I about like that, that more. We have to go to break now, but when we come back from break, I want to talk about that because guilt and anger sometimes have gotten a, a bad name. They may be the thing that gets right. our foot, <laughs> get foot out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. You get almost paralyzed by the powerlessness, and so in some ways it's adaptive to have somebody to blame or somebody to be mad at. Um, and sometimes people choose God to be mad at, and that's not a bad thing, you know. God that, can take it. God's got big shoulders. God can take right. it, but one of the problems is, and and I see it more with males, is they want to go down the litigation role sometimes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that's not a great road a lot of the time. And I have worked with two different groups over the over the years. One, compassionate friends, who I have the most amazing respect for, and parents of murdered children, who are also an awesome group of people but what i've seen is that too often sometimes the parents of murdered children's group get stuck in the anger they get stuck looking for justice and trying to find justice and there's no such thing when your kid gets murdered i just uh, had someone call me um the other day heidi had talked to her too and her sister was murdered and i said to her she was talking about you know her sibling loss and and things and i said well you know, one of the things that you might see, and I know you're probably, you know, what's going on in family dynamics is um, your dad may start down the litigation road, and she said he absolutely is already. Mm-hmm. Well, and what so. we've heard on the show from people that have gone down that road is that once they get to the trial and everything comes happens, they don't feel as right. relieved as they thought they were going to. Right. It, or what they've done is just prolonged the inevitable. Right, which because is the that person they love is still dead. The overwhelming feeling of loss. Yeah, um, and that's one of the things that Candace Leitner said that she said that it actually delayed her her grief uh, for th- she said three years mm-hmm. because she got so involved with Ned. But but what a wonderful thing she did for the yes, world. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah, so, your anger can definitely serve a positive function. And yeah. and it's as long as it's conscious and it's not um destructive. Well, one of the things that I think is tough with the medical community is sometimes they go down a road which is not going to be productive. And then I also see, particularly with overdoses and things like that, I've, I've seen it quite a bit, where maybe one parent wants to go through the whole court thing and the other one doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And it is so painful for the one that doesn't want to go that direction. And it's oftentimes women because, you know, I think men want to do you know, they want to take action. They well, want to, you know. very often men have a very hard time doing sad. They do mad much better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's hard. You know, it's a, it's a hard thing. 
Well, we, I want to talk a little bit about your work in the inner city because we had Ronald Barrett on, and he was talking about uh, how important it is to have respect for the community and mm-hmm. their rituals and that kind of thing. And I, I was wondering what you had found out. Uh, what, what I've discovered, is, and clearly I, I know this at my bone marrow, is I don't know what other people's rituals are. I can't impose them on people, so the best thing to do is ask. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, tell us, what's it like in your family when someone dies? What What's the usual thing you do? Um, you know, there's this old adage that they say you should treat people the way you want to be treated, and that's not necessarily true. I think we should treat people the way, after we ask them how they want to be treated, and then treat them that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there is a whole community of rituals. Well, do you, do you think that... Um, uh, it's kind of hard for people. Um, I know you come in and are able to meet them where, where they are, but I imagine when you work with your medical students, when you hear somebody that's a doctor or a doctor training, you might kind of be afraid or intimidated to tell them what your rituals are. Um, maybe, but, but I've seen much more on the other side of that, which is some of our medical professionals who have their own rituals and perceive that that's the right way. Ah, mm-hmm. so they're trying to be helpful again. Right, like there's no other way but their way because anything else is wrong, and and you have to beat that out of them on some level. Now, um, now if I'm a bereaved person, uh, I, one of the things that we talk about um, is the fact that you have to teach people how to treat you. I mean, that's just the yes. way it is because they don't know. Exactly, and you have to be assertive about that. Yeah. You can't expect them to know what to say or how to say it to help you. You have to figure it out yourself and then tell them. Um, again, it's about not running away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, and so, Pat, in working with these inner-city grandmothers, I was wondering what kinds of things have you seen that they've done to, to kind of work through their own grief process and find hope again? What what I've seen like, is is an amazing ability to overcome the most adverse, you know, the most overwhelming feelings and emotions. Um, we have unfortunately some violence in this city, and mm-hmm. and um, when. I have a mom. I had a mom not too long ago who was in with her third child dying. Wow. Um, she oh, had wow. five sons, and this was the third of them. One to the virus, one to the violence, and then this one was a motorcycle crash. And I remember sitting with her and, and saying, you know, we've been here before. Tell me, how did you get through your other mm-hmm. two sons' deaths? And she said to me, I went to Jesus. And so my response was, go back. Because what she's telling me is that worked for her. Mm-hmm. And so if she identifies something other than drugs and alcohol that work, I'm going to encourage her to really. Um, the other night I was sitting in the family waiting room all night long with a, a mom, and we, we looked around the room, and the waiting room was filled with women. And one of them looks up and says to me, the men do the violence and the women do the pain. Mm. And I said, oh, boy, I have to write that down (laughs) (laughs) because it's so true. But yet they take care of each other. Mm -hmm. That's what I've I've found, that that they have hearts that are open enough to take care of someone else. When they've been through something awful, they are the first group of women to come out and be there for the next group. So spirituality and their church is very important in in most of the people I work with's lives. Mm -hmm. And so sending them back to the church is a helpful thing. 
Mm. Yeah, Ronald was talking about that and said, uh, in the, he's an uh, African American and said in mm-hmm. that community, almost everyone has some kind of an after, afterlife belief. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and, that, and that it's also important, and I'm sure you know, for the family to be able to come in together. But I, I want to do a little advocacy piece here because if you are out there, you've had a terrible experience, is there something they can do to maybe do a little advocacy, not litigation, but write a little note to the hospital or something and saying, saying, you know, the, the, I think this could have been done a little better? Absolutely. Or, that would be so helpful. That would be so helpful to put it into writing about what your experience was because then we would have it and we could take it to the group that needs it and say, here's what you did and here's what you could do better. So if we had that information, if they wrote to the hospital and said, here's what happened to me and here's what what happened because of what what you you did, and then we could take it back to the, the residents or the medical students or the nurses and say, how can we make this better? We recently had that experience. We had a wife who was left in the waiting room while her husband was dying in the intensive uh-huh. care unit. And and people forgot about her, essentially, because they were so busy trying to save him mm-hmm. that an hour after he was dead, they came out and found her there. Okay. And so she wrote to us and told us that whole experience. And so what we did was to try and learn from that. We put that letter on the unit and had every nurse, every resident, every cleaning lady read it. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the letter she also said, here's what you could have done to help. Okay, and my suggestion to you, advocacy out there, is don't write it to the doctor or right. the person who did it. No, write, <laughs> write it to the it, hospital. Write it to the hospital. Absolutely. And, and this is important because... Uh, if you're angry about something the next time, uh, maybe they might do it differently. I mean, people have compassion. They they don't mean to. It, it's just, uh, you know, you're trying to keep the person alive and mm-hmm. in intensive care units, and things happen that people don't even realize. And and people don't go to you or, or act in a way that's not helpful to you, not because they're mean and rotten. It's because they don't know what else to do. That's right. And so we're working hard on our end to try and train them. I, I have an elective for all fourth-year med students in end-of-life care, and they spend two weeks with me, and, and they come with me while I do this work. And, and right afterwards I'll say, here's why I did this and here's why I did that. What do you think? But maybe the third time I say, come with me. Maybe if you want to say some things, we can do that. So it's kind of seeing it as a skill training session. Um, I love so that. I think I have a lot of hope for the next generation of physicians coming up. Well, that's great. And you know what, uh, folks out there, if you don't have this kind of thing going on in your hospital and you had an experience, maybe when you write the letter you can say, you know, you really ought to get more education in this area or, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing and, and try to encourage people to do this. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's uh, really been interesting having you on, and I'll, I'll look forward to seeing you at ADAC. Yes, I'll see you then. Okay. Thanks, Bye-bye. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.